Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. We are in a study of 2 Peter, Peter's second letter to the church in Asia. If you have a Bible and you'd like to turn there with me, I'd like to uh, read to you, starting in verse 10. But we're going to look today um, really just at the first half of verse 19 of this prophetic word confirmed and what that means for us. I'd like to uh, read to you, as I say, starting in uh, verse 10. Yep. Uh, Give attention now to God's word, please. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, For this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you of uh, always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it's right, as long as I'm in this tent, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, and you do well, sorry, which you do well to heed as the light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man from him we might uh, draw our hope and our strength for this life and that which is to come, in whose name we pray. Amen. Yale University's class of two, uh, incoming class of 2011 assembled together in order to hear their school's president give his address to the first-year students. During their time at Yale, he said, You need to be asking questions that matter. What constitutes a good life? What kind of life do you want to lead? Do you hope to live by? What kind of community or society do you want to live in? House of humanity in the order of the universe. An important component of your undergraduate experience President Levine told the freshmen, should be seeking answers to the questions that matter. Questions about what has meaning in life. The four years ahead of you offer a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to pursue your intellectual interests wherever they may lead. And wherever they may lead, you will find something to reflect upon that is pertinent to your quest for meaning in life. It's true that your professors are unlikely to give you the answers to questions about 
what you should value and how you shall live. We leave the answers up to you. Levine says there are questions that really matter in life. But even world-class intellectual institutions of the caliber of Yale do not have the answers to give you. Why not? That's the question I'd like to begin with as we start to consider the passage today. Why do the great institutions of our society ask such important questions but then give us no answers. Are they trying to drive us to despair? Despair or at least distraction? The reason why Yale and others like it cannot give us any answers, the reason why those ivy-covered walls conceal emptiness inside began years ago as they first decided that Christianity was not true And even though Yale was started in order to counter the slide at Harvard, they did lose their moorings. And they have been swept along with the tide all these years. Until now, they've embraced the secular view that there is nothing real about meaning, purpose, value, or religion. Let me explain. According to their teaching, according to the teaching of the intellectual halls of learning today, some things are real. Rate times time equals distance. Thomas Jefferson was the third president of our republic. The earth revolves around the sun. But there are no real answers to the big question, know how to think about things. What is right? What is deserving for them to devote their lives to? On such matters, they are often simply paralyzed, wishing they could be more definite, wanting to move forward, but simply not knowing how. They might possibly know anything worthy of conviction or dedication. Instead, very many emerging adults exist in a state of basic indecision, confusion, and fuzziness. The world they have inherited, as best they can make sense of it, has told them that real knowledge is impossible and genuine values are illusions. End quote. Well, even though they've been taught this from their youth, many in the rising generation still are seeking answers to these very questions. Maybe you felt like this. Maybe you felt like you're adrift, awash, wanting to move forward, not knowing how you could know. How can you find the answers to life's most important questions? If, if Yale has nothing to tell us, where can such answers be found? And how can we know that we have, in fact, found them? Peter says, you Christians have the answers. 
and growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ is the way to a life that is fruitful and visionary and intentional and assured and everlastingly rewarded, a life that partakes of the nature of God himself. You do know it, he says in verse 12. You know and are established in the present truth. Although big questions with no answers does lead to despair, finding big answers leads to life and joy and, most importantly, to God himself, the only ground of all truth and meaning and purpose and goodness. And so it is that in the first part of this letter, he has laid out for us the the basics of that precious faith we've received, he says, the exceeding great and precious promises by which we may partake of the divine nature. Now, in the passage that uh, we're considering toward the end of this first chapter, uh, Peter wishes his readers to be assured that they have found the truth. In fact, to give greater heed to it in light of the present danger. Peter has urged these Christians to grow, not only so that they'll be more fruitful and assured Christians, but also, he says, to keep them, into the letter, from being led astray by the error of the wicked, 317. Already, he writes, false teachers have come into the church who, chapter 2, verse 1, secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them. And many, he says, will follow their destructive ways. The Lord has prophesied it. Many will follow their destructive ways. The antidote, the remedy for them, is that they might have a full confidence in God's word and give greater heed to it in order to grow in their grace and knowledge. That's the overall purpose of the passage before us. But before we dive in, I need to ask, how about you? Will this be a personal sermon to you? I think it goes without saying that people will not give greater heed to the scriptures as they should, unless they believe that they're true, that they declare God's will for them, and that they're in fact in grave danger if they do not give greater heed. So, um, dear brothers and sisters, if, if you have not given yourself to be mastered by the word of God as you ought, Perhaps this sermon will be a wake-up call for you. The extent to which you devote yourself to God's Word is an indicator of how much you believe it and believe that God says what's important for your life and believe that you are in grave danger if you don't give heed to it. Uh, Buddy Howell's not here this morning, so I can freely quote him and embarrass him on the live stream, perhaps. Buddy Howell said, "'Ideas have consequences.'" And bad ideas have victims. (laughs) We are going to look today at the first part of verse 19, where Peter writes, And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to give heed. That's all we're going to take up today. That's it. The prophetic word confirmed. And I'm going to take the old Puritan approach to preaching today, namely exposition, what does the passage say, doctrine, what what does it teach us, and application, how should we therefore live. So 
three big words for your outline today if you're taking notes. Exposition, doctrine, and application. Although, unlike the Puritans, I won't have 27 points of application at the end. I'm going to be more focused. But exposition first. Let's say, what, what does the passage say? It, it, it says, we have reasons for confidence. Peter has uh, just described um, from verse uh, 16 down to verse 18, we considered last week, he has just described what it's meant for him to be one of the eyewitnesses of Christ's majesty, particularly, he says, when he was transfigured on the mountain before them as the, as the Lord himself began to shine as the sun, and just for a moment they glimpsed that divinity which was veiled in flesh. Picking up at the end of verse 18, he writes that we heard this voice. This is my beloved son. We heard this voice which came from heaven which, when we were with him on the holy mountain. Okay. But now there are some different translations of verse 19, which I'm afraid have proved rather confusing, and so I don't want to go too far without explaining what uh, you may have before you. If you have a Bible, the English Standard Version prior to 2011 the old ESV, if you like, uh, reads this way. And we have something more sure, uh, more sure than the eyewitness of the apostles. The prophetic word. In 2011, the ESV revised their reading. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Almost exactly what I have. The uh, King James Version uh, reads, We have a more sure word of prophecy. A bit ambiguous, perhaps. The New King James has, We have the prophetic word confirmed. All right. uh, If you are like me and you see these variant readings, you're like, how do all these things go together? What's what's going on? Older translations are, are certainly accurate, um, uh, but I, I think the King James might be open to, a, to various interpretations, including a certain misunderstanding that the newer translations seem intentionally to help us avoid. So some people have read that verse to mean this. Well, we do have the apostles' eyewitness accounts of Jesus, but we have something even better. More certain, the writings of the prophets. Um, Many uh, people have taken that understanding. Henry Morris, for instance, in his Defender's Study Bible, explains the verse this way. He explains it uh, saying, quote, As sure as Peter was of what he had seen and heard, this was only his own experience and could only be given as a personal testimony to others. Actually, of course, there were several apostles, but you understand. Thus, he stressed that God's written word, available to all in the Holy Scriptures, was more sure than any personal experience that he or others might have. It is not in Peter or Paul as men, no matter how sincere or holy they may be, that we must trust, but in Christ as revealed in God's written word. Okay. Um, The note in the MacArthur Study Bible, which I know that some of you have, 
is briefer, but it, it says the same thing. Quote, the word of God is more reliable verification of the teachings about the person, atonement, and second coming of Christ than even the genuine first-hand experiences of the apostles themselves. Says the older view, if you're following me, probably I've already lost half of you in this here. Okay, yeah, you know, we, we, we have the eyewitness and testimony of apostles. But we got something better. We have the writings of the, uh, the prophetic word. Okay, well, it, it seems especially to clarify or avoid this uh, interpretation that the newer translations uh, make clear that Peter is not setting pro- prophets versus apostles. The uh, meaning of uh, my translation here, uh, since the prophets spoke of Christ's glory and... Since we have become eyewitnesses of Christ's majesty, we have, as my translation reads, the prophetic word confirmed, or the new ESV. We have the prophetic word made more certain, New American Standard. We have the prophetic word made more sure. I mean, the prophetic word is already certain, but now it has been confirmed or made certain to them and to us by eyewitness apostolic testimony to the fulfillment in Jesus. So, in this case, not setting one against the other, but uh, saying that the one has been uh, confirmed or established or strengthened or made certain by the other. Uh, That's a thing I think, again, King James, rather ambiguous. The old ESV seems to lean the other way. Uh, New ESV and every other translation I could find, every other translation in the modern uh, age here is... Uh, trying to make clear to us uh, which, which reading we're supposed to have. Anyway, in any case, thank you for going with me through the weeds. Uh, understanding the Bibles and the, even the study Bibles, I know that uh, some of you are reading. In any case, we, we shouldn't think that prophets are better witnesses than apostles or vice versa. We should think that they are working together by relating promise and fulfillment in order to confirm and commend the truth to us. The promise, the, the, the prophets predicted Christ's glorious coming. The apostles described it. They were eyewitnesses to it. And it is on this that we are to rest our faith and increase our confidence. This uh, prophetic word confirmed by apostolic eyewitness testimony. So, uh, Buddy Howell last time told us about the prophecies of Daniel. He said, four, Daniel said, four great kingdoms would arise. You, Nebuchadnezzar, are the, are the first here. Babylon is the first. And then, named in the book, Persia, and then Greece. And then in the days of that fourth kingdom, that is Rome, The kingdom of God will be established and spread over the whole world. And that prophecy is given twice in two different ways. And although I couldn't keep up with all of his calculations, but he explained the prophecy of the 77s or 490 years more or less between the decree to rebuild Jerusalem and the time that Messiah comes and is cut off, but not for himself. And then after this, the holy city and the sanctuary are to be destroyed, all of which happened. I, I, I studied this with some Jewish friends. Um, and I, I asked them what they thought about this, this, this prophecy we, we have copies of long before all these events happened, um, of these four kingdoms that are going to come and go. 
and, and then the Messiah, and then the city and the sanctuary are to be destroyed, which of course they were in 70 AD. I mean, I said, what do you think about all this very specific predictions? Uh, my friend said, just luck. No, I mean, you could ignore the evidence. You could explain away the evidence. But, but proof positive has been given. The, the prophetic word is certain. And in addition to this, we have then the matter of so many eyewitnesses that, that these things were fulfilled in the glorious coming of our Lord Jesus. Um, eyewitnesses. You will be witnesses to me, he tells them. This is not like Muhammad, who got the Quran in a cave from an angel, he said. This is not like the Hindu or Greek gods with some fabulous stories of things that happened long away, far ago, long away, far ago, long ago, far away. Um, what, What we are talking about happened in human life, in flesh and blood, with many witnesses. These things did not happen in a corner, Paul told the king. Um, You know what I'm talking about. This made quite a splash. What else would make a man like Paul give up all his privilege and wealth as a young ruler in the nation, one of the 70 rulers, to become a suffering evangelist for a crucified Messiah? and to build the church that he once tried violently to destroy, what could possibly make a man change his direction like that? I mean, he says many times what he experienced with many people. He met the risen Christ. What could he possibly hope to gain? We just read his testimony. All those things he counted as loss. I mean, the prophets, for their part, were not only hated in their lifetimes, but many of them met an excruciating death. Most of Christ's disciples, same thing. We considered that last time. Some people think they have reasons for not believing the written testimony in the Scriptures. I will handle that at another day. But at this point, I'm simply encouraging people that the truth is not far from you. That if you need to know the truth, or you need to know why you believe the truth. It's not far away. We have the prophetic word confirmed to us by many eyewitnesses. False prophets, for their part, deny and contradict what the prophets had written. That's their game. This has been going on ever ever since. Isaiah wrote of Christ that he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. And he was with the uh, rich in his death and all that. Muhammad said he didn't die. He didn't even go to the cross. False prophets do not establish what was written. They contradict it. Joseph Smith, by the way, made thousands of corrections, he called them, to the Scriptures, undercutting every major teaching. By, By them, the words of the prophets are not confirmed but contradicted. Big difference. The apostles saying, we have confirmed God's prophetic word to you. Peter was about to die, verse 14. And in the light of the present danger, he describes chapter 2 following the false teachers pressing into the church with 
destructive heresies, leading people into immorality and wickedness. He wants to leave his readers a solid foundation so that after he's gone, they won't be led astray. That solid foundation is God's written word confirmed by the apostolic eyewitness testimony of its fulfillment in Jesus. And this is the meaning, the exposition of the verse. We have reasons for confidence. We have reasons for confidence. Now, what does this teach us? That's the exposition. What is the doctrine? Well, the doctrine is this. We need to know what we believe and why. We need to know what we believe and why. This teaches us that, uh, well, Peter realizes if you don't know what you believe and you don't know why you believe it, (laughs) that is a recipe for spiritual disaster. The kind of faith, the only kind of faith the Bible commends is when we know what we believe and why. We live in a day when people will believe practically anything for any reason, no matter how obviously wrong it is. I think I told you some years ago, I was at a bookstop, a bookshop, and there's this book right on the front where the register is. They're hoping to you know, tell it to you, and it, it says, if you think you can, you can. I don't know. Mind over matter uh, is interesting here, uh, power of positive thinking. I, I said, I think I can have that book for 50 cents. He says, you can't. <laughs> right. I mean, it's not true. It's obviously not true. But people will believe it's just about anything, right, um, for any reason. I talked to a man I met yesterday. He said that he was raised in a Christian home, but he believes that all religions teach the same thing. I said, I mean, you know that Hindus believe in thousands and thousands of gods, right? And that Christians believe in one. I mean, it's not the same. Um, Buddhists believe in none. Uh, And he's like, well, okay. I mean, I said, Jesus says, everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds, and to him who knocks, the door will be opened. I said to my new friend, look, the truth is out there. And with his permission, I prayed with him that he would not only be a seeker, but a finder. And hopefully I do have a new friend. But the interaction is very typical for people who don't think that religion is something that can be true or false. Like, it's not in that category in their view. They have the, the Harvard and Yale view of things, right? Um, I went to a program that Virginia Tech put on a couple years ago to try to get people to talk about their differences. Um, it was actually a series of things. The one that I went to was called Faith and Reason. That was the name of that event uh, that day. Faith and reason, trying to get people from two different perspectives to get together and talk. Well, right down my alley, right? So I went. Um, and the, the man put these things up on the whiteboard here. Uh, faith, reason. <laughs> All right. Um, and then uh, after describing the two sides, he split us up into parts. He said, All right, who's on the side of faith? Who's on the side of reason? And even as he said that, he, he laughed as he realized what he's saying. And he, and he tried to cover it by saying, you know what I mean, because he was supposed to be bringing people together. <laughs> and you just insulted half of your audience, right? Uh, I think, he, I think he, he would have been better, been better off starting with a, a different title. He, he, maybe he could have said, you know, who's on the side of faith? Who's on the side of intellectual suicide and despair? Okay? That would have been a little more fair. But, but people don't realize... What, what's going on? People think that faith and reason are, are actually opposed. A, a Newsweek article by former Newsweek religion editor 
Lisa Miller explains it this way. Reason, she says, defines one kind of reality, what we know. Faith defines another reality, what we don't know. Harvard atheist Steven Pinker says the same thing with a little more scorn. Universities are about reason, pure and simple, he said. Faith, believing, this is his words, faith, believing something without good reasons to do so, has no place in anything but a religious institution, and our society has no shortage of these. This is what people really think. Is it true? No, it's certainly not. Uh, Faith is certainly not believing something without good reasons. Again, I call Peter to the witness stand. Peter, Peter refers, first of all, to so many supernatural prophecies that have been confirmed by so many eyewitnesses of the most miraculous events in the life of Jesus. And I will open this up for you next week. But I'm also going to send out to you this week in an email the best Bodhi Bakum sermon, in my opinion, ever on this topic, why I believe the Bible in a way that only Bodhi can do. He packs, he packs it in with a punch that only he could give. And he knows jujitsu, so be careful. All right. Why I believe the Bible. I'm going to send that out. You can read it. He says it 20 times better than I could ever hope to. Now, God does not require us to believe without very, very good reasons, right? Considered a couple weeks ago when John the Baptist sent to Jesus and said, hey, are you the coming one or do we look for another? Jesus answered, go and tell John the things you hear and see. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead, have, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them, quoting two parts of Isaiah. Jesus quoting the prophets and telling those messengers to return as eyewitnesses to John to testify to their miraculous fulfillment in the life of Jesus. That's how you know. Same pattern. This is what distinguishes Christianity from every other world religion. We believe that something happened. Something happened very publicly and very dramatically. Our central claim in Christianity is that the living God has acted in history, and especially in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. You cannot separate historical fact from spiritual meaning in our religion. We believe, of course, for many reasons, including the supernatural prophecies of events confirmed by eyewitnesses and all that. For many reasons, I say. But right from the beginning, even when God called Moses to deliver Israel. Do you remember this conversation he had? Moses said, now, now God, what if I go? And they say, how do we know that this God has spoken to you? Uh, suppose they say, the Lord has not appeared to you. I says, all right, cast your rod on the ground. So he cast it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And the Lord said to Moses, now reach out your hand and take it by the tail. And he reached out his hand and t- caught it. And it became a rod in his hand. So the Lord says, that they may believe that the Lord God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of, jo- God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. And he gave him another miraculous sign as well. Okay, they could ignore the evidence. They could close their eyes. They could try to explain it away. They could say it's just luck that a, that a stick turns into a snake. They could make excuses. But proof positive was there if they wanted to know the truth. Now, proof and persuasion aren't the same thing. I understand. That's another sermon. 
But Moses, right from the beginning, not only came with those signs, he wrote, any so-called prophet who comes to you, he better come with a sign or an omen that comes true. And when he speaks, he better say what agrees with the prophets before him. Or else, you put him to death. False prophecy is a capital crime in Israel. God says, this is serious. You people don't believe everything you hear. If you think you can, you can. Okay. You better have the best of reasons before you believe something like this. Now, many times, of course, we do have to walk by faith and not by sight. I mean, none of us have seen the Lord in person, and uh, there are many things which we, we do have to walk by faith, not by sight. But you notice that the contrast is with faith and sight, not faith and reason. That's a whole different matter. Walking uh, without sight is something we do every, every day. As, uh, you know, we're going somewhere, we can't see our destination, but we have good reason to believe we're going to get there. And, and so it is, spiritually speaking, God's past and present faithfulness, his abundant demonstration of the truth, is the reason that we can trust him for our unseen future. Faith always acts on knowledge. We do it every day. It definitely is not a substitute for knowledge. Peter says, no, 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 you must grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. The more you know, the more faith you can exercise. That's the point of the passage. Though, verse 12, you know and are established in the present truth, he says, I want you yet to pay greater heed to the prophetic word. You need to know what you believe and why. My final point to you today is a practical point, one of application. We've considered the exposition of the passage. We have reasons for confidence. We've considered the doctrine I've selected here. We need to know what we believe and why. And finally, application. Christianity has big answers to big questions. Getting back to where I started with a mysterious address to the freshman at Yale, as, as the president of Yale is giving all these really good questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And says, now, you, uh, we're not going to give you the answers, of course. You go, you go get, 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 your own, get your own answer, right? What? Um, everyone has questions. You do, your friends do, your family does, your neighbors do, your culture certainly does. People will either think carefully or think poorly about these questions. But the questions themselves can't be avoided. Well, I suppose you can distract yourself. You can play and you can, you can binge watch another series. You can play another video game for another five or six hours. You can distract yourself, maybe for years. But those questions are there and they don't go away. The problem is that our culture has set up intellectual roadblocks that keep people from finding the real, good, big answers to their important questions. Our culture has set up these roadblocks. Our culture relativizes and says that everyone has his own truth. 
I mean, that makes no sense at all. Everyone has his own truth. But that irrationality prevents people from even thinking that there may be some real truth out there. Our culture not only relativizes, it privatizes. It says that my spiritual truth is personal and therefore off limits. Well, as one man wrote, people are entitled to their own beliefs, but not to their own truth. (laughs) Belief is not ultimately what matters. Truth is, our believing something is true doesn't make it true. The Bible isn't true simply because I have faith. Truth is what corresponds to reality, telling it like it is. The bottom line is that we discover truth. We don't create it. Reality is what we bump or slam into when we act on false beliefs. Okay. So we have big answers to important questions. Our world sets up roadblocks, relativizing, privatizing. Someone will ask, what about tolerance? Uh, People like my new friend, they, they actually think that they are being tolerant when they say all religions basically teach the same thing. I think that's actually intolerant to every thoughtful person of faith because it presses on us an obvious untruth. Are we supposed to nod and agree politely with what's obviously untrue? Intolerance doesn't mean disagreement. True tolerance is when we extend to each other the right to be wrong. False tolerance is when we must naively assert that all ideas are created equal and everyone's truth needs to be affirmed. That's intolerance. False tolerance. Okay, follow that? Getting warm in here. This is very philosophical today. True tolerance is where we extend to each other the right to be wrong. It's a tolerant society. You can disagree with me. You have the right to be wrong. (laughs) False tolerance is when we must naively assert that everyone's truth is true and we need to affirm them in it. Not only is it obviously false, it's the opposite of tolerance. It impinges on me. Intolerance is what is happening today when they take away the public right to disagree and to speak the truth, and they punish those who do. If you don't have the right to disagree, you are an intolerant society, not a tolerant society. Our culture is rapidly plunging into intolerance, in the name of tolerance. And it's the height of intolerance to require people to say or even believe something which is obviously false. Well, at the end of the day, everyone knows in their heart of hearts, deep down, that truth is the only sure foundation on which we can build a life. We know we can't live a lie. The world however, has turned on the very idea of truth itself. And bad ideas have victims. Jesus said, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, 
and the truth shall make you free. That's what I have to offer you today. Truth, liberty, Christ. If someone created you, would you not think that creator was worth knowing? And more than that, worth dividing, devoting your life to? And can we really believe that the God who has made us to thirst for meaning has no meaning to give us in our lives? That the one who made us inescapably moral creatures has nothing to teach us of what is good? Of the one who made love the greatest power and experience of human life has no love to show us? That the one who gave us this incredible power of speech has no truth to tell us? That is unreasonable. And not only unreasonable, that is tragic. Ideas have consequences and bad ideas have victims. Or as one author wrote bluntly, to serve God, we must think straight. And crooked thinking, unintentional or not, always favors evil. And when the crooked thinking gets elevated to group orthodoxy, whether religious or secular, there is always quite literally hell to pay. Another explain it this way, what you think is true is the map. The greatest lie there is is that there is no truth. And the greatest relief... In conclusion, when you uh, anchor a boat for the night, um, especially if there's no night watch, you're supposed to inspect the anchor to make sure that it's gripped securely. Because you know what happens if you fall asleep and the anchor slips or fails? Well, you don't notice anything at first, of course. Sleep away in the gentle current, the continuous push of the waves, Caused the boat first to drift until the moment you suddenly wake up with your boat <laughs> smacked on the rocks, taking in water. In Christianity, the anchor of our faith is the truth. The truth that we believe, revealed in the prophetic word and confirmed by the apostolic witness. The anchor of our faith is the truth. And what happens if our anchor isn't secure? What happens if the line is intentionally cut? Well, nothing much at first, I suppose. Maybe a little drift, a habit in conservatism might keep you from drifting too quickly. But then one day you wake up to find the world is experiencing that wreck. Many parts of the church have experienced it or are at least floating toward total disaster unless they, unless they wake up and regain the anchor of truth. Christianity ain't a fairy tale for grown-ups. If it's relegated to the realm of fairy tales, as Yale would have you believe, we are truly adrift. No, we are on the rocks. In such a day, we cannot seek our own comfort, as Lewis put it. If you look for truth, you may find comfort in the end, but if you look for comfort, you're not going to get truth nor comfort. And here's where the new year can be a great help to us. The new year for forces us to reckon with the past.